Does your church ever have conflict? Can I tell you, that might be a good thing. It might mean that your church is on to something big. This is your favorite night of the week. It's Tuesday night. This is The Deep End with Tim Hatch. Welcome, welcome, welcome in everybody watching on YouTube or Facebook or listening on your favorite podcast app on your phone. Wherever you are, I'm glad that you are joining me here at this moment. This is The Deep End where we talk about culture, we talk about the scriptures, and we answer your questions about God, life, the Bible, whatever. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor of Waters Church in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. Welcome in to all of our audiences. I got bad news, Deep Enders. I got bad news. This is the last deep end of 2019. Aww. We're on winter break, starting at the end of this episode. Winter break, and we will be back January 14th. Mark it on your calendars. (laughs) January 14th, 2020. And so I actually have a lot going on right now with our church and Christmas services and all that, so we won't be here until January 14th. I go on vacation with my family down to the great state of Florida, And I'll be back, ready to go, guns blazing, with more of the deep end, and uh, starting off our 2020 year with a lot of, lot of energy. I'm, I'm excited to come back, but I'm also happy to be going away and uh, taking a break. So, what are you going to do without the deep end? I'm telling you what you're going to do. You're going to subscribe. That's what you're going to do. You're going to subscribe to the YouTube.com/slash/the-deep-end-tv channel. That's what you're going to do. You're going to like this video. You're going to like it, whether you like it or not. You're going to like it. And you're going to subscribe. And then you're going to hit that little notification bell next to subscribe so that you always find out on your phone, smartphone device, or on your computer, when is the Deep End live. So that's what you're going to do. Also, check out some previous episodes. Hey, if you haven't watched the whole Book of Acts season, season three, well, go back and watch previous episodes. Lots of great content so far. I'm excited to bring this to you every Tuesday night, and I'm glad that you're here. Or if you're listening on Thursday night in the Woonsocket area on 1240 AM or 99.3 FM. Welcome to you, Thursday night audience, and to our growing Spotify audience. And now on WEZE Radio in Boston, the 445 PM drive home hour. So glad that you're all with us. Let's get into question and answers, okay? Let's get into ask anything. I always love your questions. I appreciate your questions. Keep sending them in. You can ask any question you want of the deep end uh, at ask at deepend.tv or text them anonymously to 508-316-9333. 508-316-9333. Let's get into the questions. Question number one comes from the 508-316-9333 number. Just wondering, What are your thoughts in regards to Santa Claus? I know Christian parents are on either side of whether to be honest about him from the beginning with children. What do you mean? What do you mean honest about him? I'm I'm lost. What? You mean to tell me he's not a thing? (laughs) Okay, just kidding. (laughs) Bad joke. Um, Yeah, listen, uh, Santa Claus, to Santa or not to Santa? Big question for Christian, Christian families, I guess. I don't know what you want to do here. I Here's what we do. We celebrate Santa Claus in our family, and I have no problem with those who do or do not. I think on these issues, Christians can just pick their, pick their poison, pick their choice. I don't care. Um, you, you do. I think actually what would be helpful is to talk to your kids about the history of uh, Santa Claus. He is a Christian uh, figure. I think it was St. Nicholas of Ireland or 
Scotland or Wales or Germany? Germany. Okay, from my assistant Kelly over there in the corner. Great. So Germany <laughs> produced this guy who gave gifts to children randomly. I think he actually gave money, if I, rem- if I remember. the Yeah. Gold? Yeah. So gold. Man, I'll tell you, bring back that Santa Claus for us adults. How about that? <laughs> anyway, um, so you could talk to your kids about the Christian uh, origins of Santa Claus. That would be helpful. And then celebrate them, but then tell them, you know, the guy that flies around the sky with reindeer and comes down chimneys doesn't exist. <laughs> I don't know. That's your choice. Our family loves Santa Claus. Uh, our two children, and this is kind of how it works, isn't it? Our two oldest children believed in Santa Claus till they were like 10 or 11. And then our youngest is, last year he was six and he stopped believing in Santa Claus. <laughs> he was on to us quickly. So, you know, each child might be different. But I don't, I don't fault you either way. I think you got to make that decision for yourself. And then don't let other Christians look down on you for what you do. That's, that's a negotiable thing. That's, you know, that's not a big deal. Okay, let's talk about the next question. Just came in today, actually, and I think very apropos to uh, the time we're in. Please talk about the new Netflix special where Jesus is being depicted as a gay man. I have talked with some fellow Christians and they thought nothing of it and didn't think it was a big deal. Okay. Well, I haven't seen this special myself. I didn't even know about it until last night. I was going on uh, some Christian news sites for this podcast and I found out about it. Jesus being depicted as a gay man. um, What do you expect from worldly people? Uh, That's my first thought. They usually do this kind of thing. Uh, This is nothing new. I believe the Netflix special is called The First Temptation of Jesus, which is a play on the um, movie by Martin Scorsese, The Last Temptation of Christ, where in that movie they hypothesize that he, I think he was on the cross and he had a dream of being married to Mary and avoiding the cross and yada, 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 and then we get Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. I mean, this is nothing new. Uh, to the Christian movement. Back in 1987, uh, you might remember Andres Serrano, the, I believe, Brazilian uh, artist who created Piss Christ. And what he did was he took a crucifix and he put it in a bucket and then he dumped his urine in the bucket and then took a picture of it. And uh, there was a lot of blowback from that artistic expression, as well there should be. There's a lot of Christians who have a problem with that. Uh, Jesse Helms, the notable senator um, who called for a boycott and actually uh, enacted a law in Congress, I believe, that removed a national endowment for the arts in response to Piss Christ. And I think that Christians in our country, in in a post-Christian society, have just got to kind of get used to this. This is nothing new. Uh, last year, I remember it was a Sarah Silverman special, the comedian Sarah Silverman, uh, who's, who um, was uh, uh, actually, ironically, she was blacklisted for blackface, <laughs> uh, evidently, recently by the secularists, the secularist uh, entertainment industry. But she had a special where Fred Armistead uh, of Saturday Night Live fame depicted Jesus as a pansexual who had sex with a tree or whatever. I, I don't know. You know, this, there's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes says. So this stuff has been around for a long time. Here's what I'd like to say. Listen. Listen to the person. And I want to talk to the person who's really troubled by it. Every time Christ Jesus is mocked, the Bible is proven true. 
And I feel like the kid at the end of It's a Wonderful Life. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. (laughs) Okay. Every time Christ is mocked, the Bible is proven true. Every single time. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 1 John 3, 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. John 17, 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I, is not, I am not of the world. Matthew 5, 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, listen, all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. 1 Peter 4, 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The world is not ambivalent toward Jesus, understand. And by the world, I mean the um, non-believing humans among us. They, are, they have never been ambivalent. There is no uh, neutral zone around Jesus. You either love him or you hate him. And, 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 and this is nothing new, and this should not surprise us, and it proves what Jesus said is true. Um, don't take it personally, but rather just be glad that what Jesus said comes true every single day. You ever notice that they don't do this with Buddha? They don't do it with Muhammad, do they? No, they do it with Christians. And I'm going to tell you why they do it with Christians and Christianity. You know why they do it with Christians and Christianity? Because they are cowards. That's why. Because they don't have the guts to insult Muhammad. Do you know why? Because they might get blown up. That's why. <laughs> because, because Muslims retaliate. They, they repay evil for evil. And I'm talking about radical Muslims, not your everyday, average, ordinary, peaceful Muslims that we are neighbors with here in this country. But there are Muslims that will do this, and there are Muslim countries where it is a crime to mock Muhammad. It is a, a, a punishable by death crime. It is capital crime. They do this because they are cowards, friends. They don't have the guts to mock other religious leaders, so they mock the one religion that they know won't physically attack them and seek to cut off their heads. What's the worst thing that we do with these people? What's the worst thing that we do in retaliation? Oh, we boycott. So boycott Netflix. There you go. Hashtag boycott Netflix. If you have a problem with it, cut off your Netflix subscription. There you go. Or email them. I got rid of Netflix a long time ago over something else. Um, So, you know, we call for a boycott. and, And then the boycott, unfortunately, though, gives them more publicity. And there's an old adage in the entertainment industry. There's no such thing. As what? Bad publicity. So they kind of want you to respond and get all hot and bothered and go on social media and talk about it so that non-Christians will see you talking about it and say, ooh, what is this? And they'll watch it. (laughs) So, you know, listen, the people that are attacking Christians and Christianity in um, entertainment industries or artistic expression industries are the classic elementary school bullies. They really are. What, do the, what does the classic elementary school bully do? He always hits the kid who he knows won't hit him back. And he does it because he needs attention. You know why he needs attention? Because daddy left mommy for another woman when he was four. That's why. He's desperate for daddy's love, daddy's attention. And you got it because you're a Christian, and he hates you for it. So get used to that. That, that is a badge of honor, dear Christian, when you are or your Savior is depicted as whatever. Who knows what's next? I mean, how far can they take this? Next year's Netflix special is going to be Jesus has a sex change. I mean, just be prepared for it. Like, how about that? 
arm your mind for this is going to happen again and again. But I think our best response as Christians is to love people who hate us. <laughs> Never repay evil for evil, the Scripture says, but rather repay them with good. What does it say in the Scriptures? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. If, and it, you know, uh, if, if you do this, you'll, you'll, you'll pour hot coals over his head. I mean, this is um, nothing new. It's not as bad as you think, and... I just think it just kind of says more about them than you. And if you have a problem with it, you can, you know, stop giving Netflix your money. I'm all for that. Now, as to the Christians who don't have a problem with it, I don't know. You know, that's their issue. That's not my issue. And I would just, if they, if you have Christians who have no problem with it, why don't you just not talk about it with them? Why don't you just avoid the conversation? Stop trying to control them about things that, you know, are small. This is small. This is not huge. I think that uh, you be the bigger Christian and um, serve Christ and love the family of God and be an example. That's what I think. Might not be the controversial answer, but I think it's the biblical one. Let's go to the next question. Hello, I have never been married. Before I became a Christian and was baptized, I had many partners and several abortions. If I do find a husband, should I tell him about my past? How much of my past should I share? Wow, this is a great question. Thank you so much for your um, honesty. And I know this probably was even hard to ask. And that's why we uh, allow you anonymously to ask, ask questions. So let me say this. This one is, this is a question that you, I think there's a theological, I'm going to give you the theological answer, and then I'm going to give you the practical answer. The theological answer, answer is that in Christ you are a new creation, and all the old is passed away. So even by your own um, account here, before you were Christian, before you were baptized, these things happened. Now, the theological answer is, if God refuses to bring up your past, why should you? Now, the practical answer is there might be medical complications in, in your life because of this. I'm not totally sure. There might be emotional complications in your life because of this. And it would probably be unfair to not tell a future husband if, if those emotional complications start to infiltrate your relationship. At that point, I think you do have a responsibility to say, hey, I struggle, it's just I'm still dealing with this and I need to get this off my chest and I need you to hear it because, you know, I love you and you love me and, and maybe you say this before you get married. <laughs> um, because I think that, that has a, there's a potential there. But if you can settle in your heart today that you are forgiven and Christ has washed away your sins and you are a new creation and you know that this is now over emotionally and physically and medically and all that stuff, uh, I don't think you are required to tell him. And let me circle back to theology, okay? Because actually I'll tell you a story because I love this story and it was told to me by another pastor about a woman in very much the same case that, uh, circumstance that you were in. She had an abortion, and she got saved, and she became a Christian, and she knew God forgave her, but she struggled for, with forgiveness. And she met a man who was a Christian, and she really fell in love with him, and she was so scared to tell him about the abortion. She just couldn't do it. So she prayed, God, give me the strength, and she couldn't do it. And then he proposed to her, and she said, God, I really need to tell him about the abortion, and she just couldn't do it. And then she got married, and she said, I, he's my husband now. I need to tell him about the abortion, and I cannot do it. So she went to her priest, I think she was Episcopalian, 
she went to her priest, and in you know the Episcopalian tradition, the priest absolves you and and does the you know the the priestly rites of absolution. So she tells the priest about her abortion, and he brought her through the Episcopalian procedure or whatever it is, the 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 ceremony there where he absolved her of her sin. And then she is a fantastic story. It ends like this, and she's walking out of the pastor's office, and she said, "Thank you, pastor." I can now tell my husband about the abortion. And the pastor responded, what abortion? And I think that that's a beautiful illustration of the forgiveness that Christ gives us. And I think it would be helpful for you to deepen yourself in the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to such an extent that it is truly and forever forgotten and under the blood. I mean, if we, if we start messing with that theological construct of the Christian gospel, well, then all bets are off, right? If we start messing with Christ has died and paid for our sins in full, teletelestai, the Greek word for it is finished, done, finished, under the blood, washed away. If we start picking and choosing certain sins to bring back up to the surface, then we kind of open the floodgates for every sin. To me, it is finished means it is finished. And I want you, just pastorally here I'm talking, I want you to rest in the knowledge that it is finished. And then you have to practically wrestle with, again, those issues emotionally or physically that you might have to say something. And if he's a Christian and he loves the Lord, he'll forgive. He'll walk in forgiveness with you. Okay? Okay, uh, next question. Where is the line, and this is from Ken A., where is the line or prioritization between having pride in the church and its appearance and feeding and taking care of the poor and the widows. Well, Ken, thank you so much for this question. Do you know why I bring up this question? And there's lots of questions that came in, so keep sending your questions. The reason why I bring up this question is because I'm going to answer this question in our content on the book of Acts. So that concludes the question and answer session of the Deep End episode today. Ask anything at ask at deepend.tv or the 508-316-9333 number. Ken, I'll be right back with the book of Acts content and an answer to your question. We'll be back. The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you'd like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv slash partner or on the Cash App with the cash tag TheDeepEndTV. Okay. Let's get into the book of Acts, chapter 6, and I've called this episode The Blessing of Church Conflict, Why You Shouldn't Freak Out When Your Church Has Conflict. Why You Shouldn't Freak Out When Your Church Has Conflict. What I think is great about the book of Acts is that the book of Acts helps us navigate all the ins and outs of being the church, and I think that this is why God and the Holy Spirit in His sovereign wisdom selected Luke to write an orderly account of the first uh few decades of the movement of Jesus. And so when we go to the book of Acts, we go to the book of Acts not for personal illumination so much as rather illumination for our corporate selves as the body of Christ, communal revelation, if you will. See, here's what you have to understand, dear Christian. If your church faced it, other churches have faced it. If your church has struggled in such a thing, I guarantee you, pretty much every other church you know of has struggled with such a thing. 
What I'm trying to say is that all churches experience the same challenges, the same temptations, and the same struggles. And that is why the book of Acts is there. How did the early church handle conflict with people outside of them? Well, we talked about that a few weeks ago. How did the early church handle conflict within, or uh, not conflict, but undermining Ananias and Sapphira, lies and outright deception? How did they handle that? Well, we talked about that too. Well, now we're going to talk about something that's probably more common in American Christianity than anywhere else, and that is internal church conflict. And I'm going to tell you that all churches go through this. Don't ever let the devil tell you your church is the only one that's this messed up. Wrong. I guarantee you every church that you will ever go to is messed up with some amount, some measure of conflict. The reason why is because churches are filled with people. I was once told by my seminary professor, if you ever find a perfect church, don't go. You will mess it up. And that is so true. People are what are in the church, and so therefore, because people are there, sinful and stained and selfish and in the process of sanctification and not in any way perfect, the church will have conflict. All churches go through this. And so that's why we study the book of Acts. We study the book of Acts so that we can better understand how to navigate the ins and outs, the ups and downs of church life. Now we're in Acts chapter 6, and I want to give you a little bit of a wide-angle lens on Acts chapter 6 because I want us to get it in context with what, what happens here in Acts chapter 6 that kind of sets the stage for Acts chapters 6, 7, and 8, and even chapter 9 and beyond. Because believe it or not, Acts chapter 6 is a key transition moment for the early church. Now we must remember that the mission of the church was, in, was enunciated by the Lord Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. <clears throat> Very familiar phrase. Those are the words of Jesus in the first chapter of Acts, and he tells them what they will do. Will. You will be my witnesses. You will go to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But there was a problem for the first five chapters of the book of Acts. The church did not move. The church did not go out of Jerusalem. In fact, for the first five chapters of the book of Acts, which probably roughly estimates to maybe 10 to 12 years or so of the church's life, they haven't left Jerusalem. So they're not doing what Jesus said they would do. So this is what happens is God actually starts to Make the nest a little uncomfortable. You ever hear that parable? That It's not a parable. It's a scientific fact of how mother eagles make the nest uncomfortable for their little eaglets, and they take the little soft feathers out, and then they, then they take the soft sticks out, and then before you know it, the little eaglets are like prancing around because it's so uncomfortable, and that's the way that the mother, eaglet gets the, e mother eagle gets the eaglet to finally leave the nest. Well, the Lord is like that. The Lord actually talks about this in Exodus chapter 19 to his own people, Israel, and says, I carried you out of Egypt as on eagles' wings. In other words, I have taught, taken you out of the comfort that of what you know is familiar. Even slavery for them was comfortable because they always want to go back, right, in the wilderness wanderings. He says, I took you out of what was comfortable because I'm trying to bring you into your growth season. Well, the church in the book of Acts, chapter 1 through 5, is still resting in the nest. And Acts chapter 6 comes along and there's this wonderful thing that happens. There's this wonderful thing that happens. Conflict happens. Now, I understand why they weren't leaving. Do you know why they weren't leaving? Because amazing things were happening. Acts chapter 4 talks about it. 
Acts chapter 4 says, With great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Owners of lands, houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. So there's miracles. There's healing. For heaven's sakes, angels are getting the apostles out of prison. I mean, wouldn't you want to be a part of a church where angels are setting, <laughs> are setting your leaders free from prison? Who would ever leave a church like that? Like, this is where the action is. But the mission of Jesus was still important. And it's actually, it was the imperative of the church. And so the Lord starts to use conflict, yes, conflict in the church to bring the early church through this transition season. And so conflict is inevitable, but it can be used and it can be leveraged for good. And we're going to see that here in Acts chapter 6. Let's get into the text. Here's what it says. Verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, and this is about food. So just note for a second, there's good news and there's bad news. Good news. Good news is the disciples were increasing in number. That's good. Bad news. A complaint because widows were being neglected. Bad news. So here's the deal. With every growing church, there's going to be problems. Your problems as a church might be because you're growing. Now, I will take those problems. As a church leader, let me tell you, I will take those problems over a stagnant, not-growing church. Okay, you got not-growing not church problems, that's a big problem. But growing church problems, that's a good problem. It's an opportunity. I'm going to tell you right now. So they're complaining, and the word complaining is funny in the Greek. It's actually gagosmos, and it's one of those onomatopoeic words, onomatopoeic. Good there, I pronounced it right, which means that the word sounds like what it is. Gagosmos. So people were gagosmos, gagosmos, Just think about that. They were just gagosmos, gagosmos. Like the word murmur. Murmur, 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 murmur. It sounds like what it is, right? That's exactly what's going on here. And here's the thing. The church is growing and groaning at the same time. Now, some Christian leaders, some pastors, are under the false impression that if they can just get their church to grow, all their problems will be gone. Wrong. You would just experience different problems. In the words of the great theologian, Biggie Smalls, mo money, mo problems. <laughs> but I like to say, mo people, mo problems. You got more people, you're going to have more problems. The difference between a large church and a small church is that a large church has large problems and a small church has small problems. So there is this problem, and let me just under, underscore the problem for us a little bit more clearly so that we understand what the problem was, because it's a problem that we have today uh, in the church Everywhere. The Hellenists, all right, are complaining because the Hebrews are favoring their widows in the food distribution service. So you have two groups of people in the early church, and we've talked about this on the podcast through our study of the book of Acts. We have the Hebraic Jews, okay, and these are the Jews that are born, raised in Jerusalem, died in the wool Jews. They're motherland Jews, if you will. And then you have the Hellenist Jews, and Hellenist, that's just another term for Greek-influenced. That means they were Jews that scattered throughout the known world, and then Alexander the Great came and conquered the known world and established Hellenistic culture, Greek culture, throughout the known world. 
So these Jews that left Jerusalem were more Greek-influenced. They were more um, cosmopolitan, if you will. It's like the difference between a Christian that lives in Nashville, Tennessee, or Atlanta, Georgia, and a Christian that lives in New York City. Okay, they're both Christian. They both love the Lord. They both believe Jesus died for their sins. But how many know that those two people are going to be very, very different? Well, that's what's happening here. But you have the Hellenists who came in for the Jerusalem uh, celebration of Pentecost, and they haven't left. (laughs) They came. The Holy Spirit fell. Miracles started happening. Like I just said, if a church like that that you go to where miracles are happening and angels are letting people out of prison, it starts occurring on a regular basis, you wouldn't leave either. So they came for the celebration. They ended up staying there permanently. And so there's an argument. And the argument is that the people who came in as outsiders into the Jerusalem church start getting neglected. Why? Because insiders in churches usually get favored. That's just a fact. That's just the human nature. I'm familiar with these people. These are my people. So I'm, I'm of, I, of course I'm going to give preferential treatment to the people that I'm familiar with. And so that's exactly what is happening in the first century church. Does this happen in your church? Good news. It's nothing new. Even the early church that was filled with the Holy Spirit was experiencing the very same kind of thing. So you've got the Jerusalem Jews favoring their widows at the neglect of the Hellenist widows. What will the church do? And this is a conflict that we still have to this day, because in every church you've got like the insider group, the people who are very familiar with church and have been there for a while, the Hebraic Jews, if you will, quote unquote, the Hebraic Christians. And then you have the Hellenist Christians. I call them the fringe groups in your church, the people that are new, the people that are different, the people that are maybe a little bit more worldly than you. Maybe their kids um, are a bit more worldly than your kids or whatever. And, And there's this distance, there's this disconnect. And so here's the struggle. Okay, what kind of church are we going to be? Are we going to be a church that is welcoming to the outsider, the fringe, the people who are coming in, or are we going to be a church that is more dedicated to making sure that the insiders are comfy? Every church answers that question every single week. Whether they believe it or not, they're answering that question every single week. Will you adjust what you do for people who are coming in, or will you hold on for dear life to your traditions and your styles, your music, your choice of, you know, how you sing or how you do church, you know, hold on to that for dear life because that's how grandma did it. And if I ever change, then she's going to be rolling over in her grave. And you never change because, because listen, people, culture changes. Now, our message never changes, but our culture can change to accommodate the message to the culture. And what we're going to see from the book of Acts is how quickly the church is enabled to change for the sake of those who are outside. So let's get into the solution. Here's what happens. Verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, this goes back to Ken's question in our Ask Anything moment, and I'll get to it in just a moment. I'll get to the answer. Verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint, to the, we will appoint them to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay. First thing I want you to see in this text is how the church starts to engage the problem. I don't want you to miss that the 12 apostles summoned the full number of who? The disciples. And that term disciples is important because they did not just call 
everybody in. Please understand this. It is not good for the church to air all of its problems to everybody who comes to the services on the weekend or the masses or the gatherings, whatever you want to call them. It's not good. It's not healthy. Because some people are there for the first time, and you don't want to put that on them as soon as they come in. Hey, uh, welcome to our church for the first time. So glad you're here. Hey, we're about to split, and uh, we want you to pick one of the parties that's going to split away from this church. I mean, that's, they don't need that. Secondly, they can't handle these spiritual matters. Conflict in the church, here's what I'm saying. Conflict in the church should be handled by those who are already vested in the church and active. That's what the term disciples mean. So the disciples don't call everybody, they call the disciples. And then they say this phrase, it is not right, it is not right that we should uh, give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, you are probably asking this question right now. Are the apostles correct here? Aren't they being proud and arrogant, a.k.a. Ken's question? Aren't these guys the same men who... Literally, if you take your Bible and literally flip four pages back to John 13, aren't these the guys that Jesus was washing their feet saying, so you should wash one another's feet? Now here they are, and they've been rescued from prison a few times, and they're doing a, you know, wonderful works and miracles, and now they have the audacity to say that serving tables is beneath them? And maybe those are your questions, and those are good and important questions. And it brings me to an important topic in how we have to, dis- how we have to learn from Acts chapter 6 about how the church so- should resolve these material conflicts in the church. Because this is really a matter of material conflict. This is not a spiritual conflict. It is a material conflict. There's no theological debate here. This is a material debate. So the apostles say very forthrightly, that it's not right for them to give up, what? The preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Now, you have to remember that these men were witnesses to the ministry, miracles, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They had spent three solid years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. They left homes, houses, jobs, families to spend time with Jesus in intensive study around the principles of the kingdom for three years. What they had to offer the church in terms of teaching and education and discipleship in the word was essential to the church becoming what it needed to become, the body of Christ. They had been with Christ. Now they are leading the body of Christ, and they are 100% right in saying, if we sacrifice teaching you what Christ taught us for the sake of giving you food— We abdicate the more important job that the Lord has entrusted to us. It is not right, they say. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, I understand where some people are going to come at me with a question here. Well, a pastor should model servant-heartedness, if you will, a servant's heart to the church pastor. A pastor should model a whatever-it-takes-to-get-the-job-done mentality. I think that it is a very spiritually uplifting thing when the pastor is setting up chairs and mopping floors and doing, you know, the material tasks to make the church happen. And I would suggest to you 
that the devil loves that idea 100%. <laughs> I think he is he 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 just thinks you're wonderful for thinking that. Because wouldn't it make sense to take the guy if you're the devil, to take the guy who has gone to school and been educated and given himself to the study and the reading of God's word so that he can make it plain and simple and apprehendable to the person who does not have the time to do that, wouldn't it make sense if you're the devil and you hate the word of God getting in the ears of God's people, because he does, or you want to twist the word of God like he has been doing since the Garden of Eden, and he did in the temptation of Jesus in the, in the wilderness, wouldn't it make perfect sense for the devil to just keep that man as busy as he possibly can make him doing everything other than telling and teaching God's people God's word. The Bible testifies from Genesis 1 onward that everything God does, he does through his spoken word. And God said, let there be, and there was. Genesis 1. Jesus is the logos, the word of God made flesh. Everything God does, he does through his word. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth and all their hosts. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Listen, through the preached word of God, people are saved and transformed from within. And those people become servants of the mission of Jesus. They become selfless through the power of the Holy Spirit. And they start to use the things that God has given them to bless others and bring the kingdom into the uttermost parts of the earth. So here's the devil's strategy, in my opinion. The devil's strategy is, let me give this aspiring preacher a savior complex. And let me make him feel like he needs to meet everyone's material needs. He needs to be the model of servant behavior all the time and do even the most menial task in ministry so that no one can claim he's proud or arrogant. Then let me also fill him up with a sense that no one else does the job as good as him so that he's unwilling to let anyone else do them. Then over the course of the time, the church will come to expect such behavior from their pastor, and every future pastor will be judged by that first pastor with the Savior complex who determined to give himself fully to everything before preaching the word, which was his primary responsibility in the first place. In simpler terms, the devil's strategy is, Let's get ministers so busy in the work of the church, they have no time to prepare the war word of the Lord. I'll say that again. Let's get ministers so busy in the work of the church, they have no time to prepare the word of the Lord. So now the word of the Lord suffers. The people suffer because they can't hear the word of the Lord. They can't grow, they can't develop, and they can't become servants themselves. I have pastor friends who do this. It does not work out well. The church will usually average around 100 to 150 people. The church will never grow past that because the, pa the pastor is relied on to do everything. And he has to visit every person in the hospital. And he has to make house calls. And he has to do all the counseling. And by the way, this is how adultery happens because he starts counseling married women or single women. And before you know it, he spends enough time with these women and it's just human nature and his flesh gets involved and her flesh gets involved. Or single men now, now in today's homosexual world. It happens that way. This is, how, this is a recipe for disaster when we expect those who have been trained to preach and teach God's word to do everything in the church. Now, 
Should the, should the pastor be willing and model servant behavior on, on things in the church? Yes, but not everything. Like, like I go to hospitals and I visit people. I don't counsel because I, I just, I'm not good at it. But I, and I've, I've actually proven myself not good at it because everybody that I ever counseled in our church is gone. <laughs> they left. Um, but this is why I'm not, a, also, let me just go on a little bit of a pastoral diatribe for a moment. This is why I'm not a big fan of pastors doing funerals and weddings. Nor do I understand how funerals and weddings became the minister's responsibility. I think, actually, this is a holdover from the medieval ages when the church owned all the land in the town, and the pastor was not just the pastor. He was the vicar. He was the local magistrate, if you will. I think it's a holdover from all that, honestly. Uh, weddings and funerals, anybody can do. There's not a passage in the Bible that says you need your, you need your local minister to do your wedding or perform your funeral. There is also no passage in the Bible mandating that a pastor must be the only, only one to visit you in the hospital, the only one to come and see you when you're sick. In fact, Jesus told the entire church to do that. Remember, whatsoever you did unto the least of these, my brethren, you did unto me. That's a, that's a prerogative for the entire church, not the hired professionals. I don't know why ministers are required to be around death anyway, the funeral thing. I mean, I do them. Not a big fan, honestly. Don't like them. Don't ask me to do your funeral. <laughs> do me a favor. I, I don't know why we, ministers, we are about life, the gospel, and the presentation of life. Why, why, do, you, why do you want us at the funeral? That's not, that's not a place of life. That's a place of death. Now, when I am asked to do a funeral, I know. I will preach the gospel. Hopefully, people will get saved. But most of the times, and I've been to enough of them, most of the times, people just want me to come and say, they're there. And anybody can say they're there. And I'm not against showing compassion and being kind and all that. That's good. We should do that. And I should do that as a Christian, but not as a pastor. Here's what I'm thankful for in our church, in the church that I get to pastor in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. I'm thankful for the men and women that give themselves to the ministry so that I can do this. I prepare two messages a week, this deep end message content, and then the weekend content at our church. The reason why I can do that with such ease is because our church has grown and ministry has been accomplished by the people, not the pastor. So this is why the apostles say in verse four, uh, verse three, pick out brothers from among you, and then verse four, to do this, and then verse four, and we will devote ourselves to what? To what they needed to devote themselves to, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Why? Because the word creates Life in the church. And if you're just listening, I'm just writing this down on the screen. The word creates life. We need to make sure that we, I think churches should jealously guard the pastor's time to prepare the word for his people. Do some pastors take advantage of this? Yes. And so those pastors should repent and serve alongside with their people. Uh, a pastor who sits in his office all day and never ever does anything outside of that that's probably not a healthy situation. But a pastor who sacrifices time spent in the Word to do the, the material tasks of ministry, I think is playing into the devil's hands and is actually living counter to the, uh, to the teaching of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 4, what does it say? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints. That's the regular, that's church people, 
for the work of the ministry. Look at look what he says. Who does the work of the ministry? Just just real quick. The, <clears throat> the Lord, that's the, that's the he there, Jesus, he gives apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work. Who's doing the work? The saints of ministry. The saints go and visit each other. The saints perform weddings and funerals. The saints are there when you need them. The saints build up each other. And that's how, verse 13, he gets to it, until we attain unity. And then he says maturity and the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children. See, children expect dad to do everything for them. At some point, you become an adult and dad doesn't have to do it anymore. You do it because dad has taught you well. We'll no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Why are so many Christians so weak in determining what is false doctrine and not false doctrine? Because their pastors are not properly teaching them, possibly because their pastors are exhausted because they're doing everything. I've heard of pastors that are on call 24 hours a day. I was watching a video of a guy in Atlanta. He has to take a four-month sabbatical, and he was preaching. He was like, you don't understand everybody, and this is a 10,000-member church. He says, I am on call 24 hours a day. When I was reading that, when I was listening to that video, I said, what on earth are you doing being on call 24 hours a day? I don't even think doctors are on call 24 hours a day. You You need breaks. I mean, I get it. Be on call some hours of the day. But if somebody is calling you at 12 midnight because mom is dying, don't answer. Does that sound unloving? Maybe it is unloving in, the, in some people's perspective, but in my perspective, it is guard your spirit so that you don't have to take six-month-long sabbatical breaks because you sacrificed your health and your energy on the altar of ministry, and you didn't equip the church, the body, to feed itself. That's my opinion, and I think I have the mind of Christ based on the Scriptures. By the way, this is why you should be serving at your church and not just listening and going. Not because you feel altruistic, not because it's the right thing to do, not because you've been inspired by the service of others, not because it feels good when you serve others. No, you should serve because of what Ephesians chapter 4 says here. You have been fed the word of God so that you were equipped to do the work of God. That's why you serve. That's why you sign up and serve at your local body and you ask your pastor or your leaders, what can I do to help? How can I get involved? Don't wait for them to ask you. You ask them. This is what the body of Christ is meant to do. Pastors included, but not pastors only. Let's get to, this, let's get to the um, response. Verse six, verse 5. And what they said pleased. I love that. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. I just love the fact that they were happy about this decision. They were like, that's right. They didn't get all upset. They didn't say, oh, how dare you? Shame on you. You should model servanthood behavior. No, they were like, man, that's, that feels right. And I think there are many of you listening to me right now, most of you probably, you say, yes, that does feel right. The pastor should feed us so that we can be strengthened to do the work of the ministry. They, what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. You know, just I I saw them getting pleased here, and I thought, what a wonderful response. But sometimes, and in many cases, people aren't pleased when the pastor doesn't do everything for them. And uh, there's a great uh, church uh, 
He's a, a kind of like a church commentator. He, he's very well known in the church world. His name is Bill Esam. He wrote a book called The Ten Most Common Mistakes Made by Church Starts. And he talks about one of the common mistakes is the pastor does everything. And he says, quote, dependence on the pastor turns the church inward instead of keeping its focus on reaching out. Everyone knows that the addition of more people threatens this great relationship with the pastor and creates competition between parishioners for the pastor's time, end quote. I love that quote because he's basically saying sometimes the church wants the pastor to do everything because they're quite possessive of the pastor and they don't want to share him or they don't want to share their church. They want to have this real close-knit relationship with the pastor. I still get this. I have a very large church here in North Attleboro. I still get this on occasion. People kind of get mad that they haven't met me and they've been coming to the church for three months. I am not the church. I am part of the church. You have met people in the church. They are just as valuable in the mind of Christ as I am. I'm just the guy on stage. And um, sometimes there's an immaturity there, and, the, and we need to grow up. That's why Ephesians 4 says we need to grow on to maturity and stop expecting the minister to do everything for us and start looking at the body of Christ for what it is, this big, beautiful, diverse body of well-able and equipped people from different walks of life who are fed faithfully the Word of God so that they can do the work of God. Okay, I could go on and on about all this for ages, but I'll stop. The last thing I want you to just note here in verse 6 and 7 is, did you see the names? Can we put this back up full screen? Look at the names, because the names are important. The names are uh, Stephen and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. What are, what are all these names? What do they all have in common? Do you know what they all have in common? They are Hellenist names, Greek names, if you will. They are Greek names, and that is phenomenally important to this text. I'll tell you why, because look what happened in the very first verse. What happened? Who was complaining? Let's go back. In the days when the disciples were increasing, a complaint by the Hellenist rose against the Hebrews, and all the people who were selected to handle the complaint were who? Hellenists. The Greeks. So the Greeks do the complaining. And when the apostles start to think, okay, let's find some people to fix this, guess who gets chosen? The Greeks. Here's the point. If you see a problem in the church, maybe the Holy Spirit is leading you to be part of the solution. And the problem, I think, that what happens in our country and in our church is that we are very adept at complaining, not so good at contributing. When there's a problem, we love to complain about it. And in fact, we are living in a culture in which the complainer gets the headlines. I'll give you a modern-day illustration. This is going to sound political, but it's not, because even she herself says, I am not political. So let me just use her. She's Times Person of the Year in May of 2019. I'm sorry, what is it? It's November of 2019. December of 2019. Times Person of the Year in 2019, Greta Thunberg. Climate activist who asks teenagers to skip school in order to force governments to do more to curb climate change. This is who Time Magazine has decided is person of the year. They ignored several other notable candidates. And some people say, well, that's because she's young and she's inspirational and she's full of wisdom. You know, the young, they're so wise. Okay, well, do you know who got ignored for person of the year? This guy, Boyan Slat. He's also from Europe, if it needs to be someone from Europe who's young. He's also young. He's 25. And for the last seven years, Boyan Slat has been working on a system that will automatically collect trash from the ocean. 
He's concentrating his efforts on what scientists call the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, an area between California and Hawaii in the Pacific Ocean that's twice the size of Texas, where 1.8 trillion pieces of plastic currently reside. And this is from dogonews.com. Slat's dream is to remove 50% of the trash in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch within the next five years and 90% on all of all ocean plastic by 2040. Listen, millions of dollars and seven years of his life have gone into this. He's 25. He started when he was 18. And I just want to show you a little video that kind of encapsulates the program that he's doing. Just a short piece. This is from um, the YouTube channel there, youtube.com slash the ocean cleanup. Look at this. 1.8 trillion pieces of plastic float at the surface of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Here, the Ocean Cleanup is deploying the world's first technological solution to this growing problem. The principle behind it is simple. Create a coastline where there are none, concentrate the plastic, and take it out. The system consists of a 600-meter-long floater and a 3-meter-deep skirt attached below. The floater provides buoyancy to the system and prevents plastic from flowing over it, while the skirt prevents smaller particles from escaping underneath. As the impenetrable skirt creates a downward flow, marine life can safely pass beneath it. Here anyway, I just wanted to show you a small segment of that because that's what he has worked on for the last seven years to make, not, not to not complain about climate change, but actually to do something about it. But he doesn't get on Times Person of the Year. Or how about another young person from America and a woman named Morgan Vague, a Reed College student who just developed a bacteria or uh, discovered a bacteria that turns plastics into harmless enzymes, potentially solving the world's plastic bottle waste problem. She has a TED Talk where she talks about this. You can learn more about it at TED.com. And in a world where we recycle only 10% of the plastic we use, this, her solution, could be an answer. An answer, friend, to the terrible problem of pollution and climate change. But she doesn't get on Time Magazine either. No, we need to celebrate the school skipper. We need to exalt the kid who thinks, if I skip school, surely governments will do something about this. No, actually, schools are run by the government, and they're probably just happy that they don't have to work as hard because there's not so many students in the school. <laughs> this on top of the fact that The Guardian magazine has reported that after four years of school strikes, she has accomplished nothing. After four years. You say, Pastor, why are you talking about all this? Because this is the world we live in, and this mentality of the world where we celebrate the complainers and ignore the contributors infiltrates into the church. It gets right into the church. We, 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 we become complain, professional complainers and part-time contributors. In, in my own words, some will become part of the mission. Many just want to enjoy the movement. And when the movement isn't going the way they want, they just want to complain about it. So my question to you is, are you a complainer or a contributor? Because... In my opinion, if you see something wrong in the church, then you see it because God has spoken to you about it. Maybe you should do something about it. Summing up this passage, verse 7, it says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is beautiful because look what happens. The word of God increases, and then the number of disciples multiplies. You see, when the ministers have, when the preachers, when the teachers have the time to teach and preach the word of God correctly, 
Converts are made. Disciples are made. People are added to the church because they get saved, the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. They are added. And then notice the last thing it says, the priest became obedient to the faith, which is a beautiful picture of what's happening. The priests represent Old Covenant service. What was Old Covenant service? Sacrifices and offerings at the temple. Lambs, goats, birds, grain being burned, slaughtered and burned, right? That's the Old Covenant sacrifices. Now the priests are watching what? They're watching the New Covenant priests, the saints, sacrifice their time, their wealth, and their resources to serve one another's needs. And the, and the priests are like, this is better than killing animals. And we don't have to kill any animals anymore because Jesus is the final sacrifice. So guess what now? We get all that extra energy. We don't have to kill animals. Guess what we can do now? We can offer ourselves. We can offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Romans 12, right? Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is new covenant worship. Now, I want to just summarize a couple more things, another, a little bit of a response to what happens after this problem. Verse 8, right after this, it says this, And Stephen, who Stephen? Stephen from the seven Stephen. Stephen who waits on tables, Stephen. Full of grace and power was doing great signs and wonders among the people. And then the men who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, they come against him. And we'll talk about this next time. I, I don't have time to cover all of it. Um, but let's fast forward a little bit further to Acts chapter 8. So Acts chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen does signs and wonders and then preaches a powerful message in chapter 7. We'll talk about that next time. But chapter 8, look what happens, verse 5. Philip, who Philip? Philip from the seven. Philip who stepped up to wait on tables and serve so that the disciples and the apostles could preach. Now he has a moment. He goes down to the city of Samaria and proclaims to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was much joy in that city. Do you see what's happening? This is so, this is so beautiful. You got Stephen and Philip. Two of the seven who step up and serve, and they serve for a season waiting on tables. And just after a little while, they are part of that second generation group that carries the mission forward to where? To Samaria. To where Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, told the church they need to go. But they weren't going yet because they liked being cozy and comfy in Jerusalem. And so here's what happens. God uses the conflict of the church to do some beautiful things in the church. And I'll just summarize this episode by saying this. Number one, the benefit of the first church fight is the role of church leaders is clarified. The pastors, the teachers are given the time to preach and teach the word because God changes lives with the preaching of his word. But number two, a new crop of future leaders are identified. This is how we get Stephen. This is how we get Philip. This is how we get the gospel into Samaria because Philip is part of that second-gen group. And then third, the church's global mission is amplified. The, the church moves out of Jerusalem for the first time. Who is it? Is it the apostles who heard Jesus say, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria? No. It's those next-gen leaders who stepped up to serve so that the first-gen leaders could feed the people the word of God. Here's my 
admonition to you. When you step up and serve God, man, no one knows, and not even you, not even you knows where God could take you. I started serving in my church as a sound man, as a, as a musician, you know, in, in kids' ministry. I've done it. You name it in the church, I've done it. Lord leads through servants. When you lay down your life and you serve, he elevates your life. And before you know it, you're doing great things, like Philip, like Stephen. Amen. So it's been a pleasure this year, 2019, doing the deep end. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you keep watching. And if you haven't already, send us your questions through ask at deepend.tv or 508-316-9333. And then most importantly, like and subscribe on the youtube.com slash the deep end TV channel. YouTube.com slash the deep end TV channel. Like and subscribe. Click the notification bell. Or visit us at thedeepend.tv for content. And you can also pick up this wonderful Deep End Tumblr. Maybe a Christmas gift for somebody that you love. <laughs> Who knows? Thanks for joining us. I will see you in 2020. This was The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.